The New Testament reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6, and you can find it on page 569 in the Papal Bible. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, immoral or impure or who is covetous, covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. This is the word of the Lord. In the early episode of the TV show Seinfeld, two of the main characters, Jerry and Elaine, were watching a movie on the living room couch. Jerry was sitting on one side, and Elaine was sitting on the other. And a thought enters both their minds, and Elaine notices that Jerry gives her what she calls the look. And the bedroom is just over there, and they start playing around with the idea of going over there to the bedroom together. Jerry reasons to himself, and maybe in part to seduce Elaine, and says this, I mean, let's just consider for a moment, what if we did? What if we went there? Is that the end of the world or something? Why shouldn't we be able to do that once in a while if we want to? I mean, really, what's the big deal? I mean, we go in there, we're in there for a little while, and then we're right back out here. It's not complicated. Elaine in agreement says, it's almost stupid not to. This conversation between Jerry and Elaine in many ways illustrates the modern perspective on what we think sex is, can, and should be. Obey your thirst. No strings attached. After all, it's just sex. But is this view healthy and does this work? Now, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, here in our text, we find that the Apostle Paul, he is adamant, he has strong opinions about sexual immorality. And whenever we hear these two words, sexual, and immorality together in the same sentence, we start to get uncomfortable. You know, we tense up. You know, everyone's got an opinion. I mean, some of us think that our sexuality is what defines us. And our sexual freedom has to be protected at all costs. And whatever something that was written thousands of years ago has got to say about this, you know, is really outdated and is old-fashioned. Some of us struggle with the thought that church itself seems to always be telling us where the lines are, that it seems to be put limitations on what we feel would make us most happy. Now, many of us who profess faith in Jesus, some of us may really find the logic of Seinfeld to be quite persuasive. I mean, if it feels good, if it doesn't hurt anybody, and if it's mutual, then why wouldn't it be okay? Now, others of us feel that this whole topic makes us uncomfortable. It, you know, it feels a little dirty. Or others of us may have been victims 
of, of sexual assault or you know, victimized in some way or experienced deep betrayal. And this whole topic itself just painfully reminds us of our sexual brokenness or the sexual baggage that we brought in this morning. Now, we are not oblivious to deep betrayal or infidelity. We see it, we've experienced it, we know it's around us. We are not oblivious to the harassment or objectification, to STDs, STIs, or whatever, and addictions, and the list can go on and on. And on the one hand, we find that the Bible is enthusiastic. It celebrates sex for what it can be when it is accompanied with love. And on the other hand, it is candid about its destructive capabilities when love is taken out. Now, is it possible that we've distorted sex in such a way that we get what we need, that we, it suits our needs at the expense of others? Are we using sex in a way that's truly loving? Or is sex and love just two separate, separate completely different things and they're you know, two different kettles of fish? Now, what if, what if we learn from God on how to walk in love? I wonder what difference that might make for us, not only for a church, but our city, our society, and for our own personal lives. What might that mean for us? What difference might that make? Paul says, be imitators of God and walk in love. So this morning, I want to ask two questions to guide our thought this morning. Two main questions. First, why do we distort sex? And second, how do we walk in love? How do we distort sex? And how do we walk in love? So first, how do we distort sex? In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, an experienced demon named Screwtape mentors his nephew, Wormwood, a junior demon. And he mentors and teaches him how to tempt humans. And in one of his correspondences in the letters, he says this. This is Screwtape. God is a hedonist at heart. He has filled his world full of pleasures. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. Screwtape knew that contrary to being a cosmic killjoy, God is actually the originator and creator of all true pleasures. We, as created beings, are incapable of actually creating one ourselves. The only thing we can do is merely distort them. And so when Paul is prohibiting sexual immorality, he is not prohibiting the pleasures of sex, nor even sex itself, but merely its distortions. And so I want to ask, I want to look at two main distortions, two ways in which we have as a culture, as a society, have distorted sex, two ways that I think God would say that we've got it wrong. And if we're going to follow Jesus, and if we're going to learn from him and how to walk in love, we need to be mindful of this distortions of how the love is just taken out. So how do we distort sex? Distortion one, sex is merely an appetite. Sex is merely an appetite. In Paul's surrounding culture, sex was viewed in many ways in the same way which we view it ourselves today. That it's merely an appetite, much like hunger. You know, if you're thirsty, you obey your thirst. Well, if you have sexual impulses and desires, well, you indulge. And to do otherwise would be stifling, if not unhealthy. And 
this is the reason why most people in that day, most men, had polyamorous relationships. They, they had multiple sex partners. It was the actual norm in Paul's surrounding culture. This is the same reason why many today would find monogamy to be an absurdity. I mean, that's so old-fashioned. I mean, today's modern hookup culture would say that sex can be casual, that it's no big deal. After all, it's just, it's just our bodies. But what God intends for sex is that it doesn't merely bring together two physical bodies, but it's meant to bond us together in a much deeper way. This is why even George Costanza intuitively knew that casual sex was an oxymoron. It was an impossibility. When he heard that Jerry and Elaine were going to try to be friends with benefits, he got up out of his chair and said, Jerry, you're flat out crazy. In the words of George Costanza, two Seinfeld references for you today. George Costanza, where are you living? Are you here? Are you on this planet? It's impossible. It can't be done. Thousands of people have been trying to have their cake and eat it too, and all of a sudden, the two of you are going to do it? Where do you get the ego? Now, we depreciate sex by reducing it to an appetite to indulge, but we also re re reduce and depreciate sex when we reduce it to an appetite to suppress. To suppress. Now, many in the church throughout the centuries have taught that sex is something dirty, that it is inherently dirty, that if we're, having, we're enjoying it too much, then we must be doing something wrong. And this has led many to... A needless guilt, shame, resentment. This has kept many marriages from enjoying this gift that God gave us to enjoy. Now, sex is not merely a curse of the fall. It's not a curse of the fall. Not at all. On the contrary, it is actually a part of God's good creation to be enjoyed. Now, God's original design for us included our bodies with all its nerve receptors, with the sensory receptors, nerve endings, why would God include all that? Because God is pro-pleasure. God is pro-pleasure. Now, there's an entire book in the Bible called the Song of Solomon where the husband and wife exchange erotic love poetry. And what do they talk about? Each other's bodies. In the Bible, God is pro-body, pro-pleasure, he is pro-sex. Now, husband and wife are able to give to each other sacrificially, mutually, exclusively, selflessly, to give in love, in body, in mind, and soul. And at its best, a marriage bed reflects, is a shadow of, is a foretaste of, is a signpost to the wonderful intimacy that our Lord Jesus ultimately desires with us. How he desperately longs that intimacy with us, to share it with us. It's just that our, our marriage bed at its best is a taste and foreshadow of that. Maybe even a shadow. That, that Jesus wants and longs for that intimacy with us even now. But when we reduce sex as merely an appetite, either to indulge or to suppress, it, you know, it doesn't keep us from, it keeps us from loving each other and rather we start to use each other. Because this distortion of sex takes the love out of it. How do we distort sex? 
Distortion one, sex is merely an appetite. Sex is merely an appetite. Distortion two, sex is the answer. Sex is the answer. Woody Allen said, I don't know the question, but sex is definitely the answer. Have you wondered why Paul seems to connect sexual immorality with covetousness and idolatry in our passage? He seems to put them together. Ephesians 5, verse 5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, Christ and God. For Paul, sexual immorality and idolatry are deeply connected. And we distort sex when we elevate it and glorify it as a God. We think that it is the pinnacle of human experience. We think that unless we have it, we cannot be happy. And we ask sex to quench our thirst and to fulfill our deepest needs. We asked sex to do for us what it was never intended to do. We asked sex to be the answer. But what really is the question? What are we really looking for when we lie in bed with our love partners? We are longing for the very thing we lost in Eden. A sense of goodness. A sense of wholeness that everything is right. We're desperate to hear someone outside of us affirm us, the question we are longing to have answered is, am I good? Am I lovely? Am I acceptable? Paul's word for sexual immorality is the word porneia. The Greek word is porneia. That's where we get our word pornography. And we didn't have, or they didn't have internet pornography in their day. But that word porneia would have encompassed that. It would have encompassed all illicit sexual fantasies and encounters. And its promise to us is that it will quench our thirst and to fulfill our needs. But it is a promise that it is unable to keep. And instead it leaves us empty. It leaves us needing more. It leaves us unfulfilled. And yet, it allows us to continue to consume without ever having to give. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he talks about what he calls the imaginary women. Imaginary women are always, sorry, imaginary women are always accessible, always subservient, cause for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attractions which no real woman can rival. Among those shadow brides, he is always adored, always the perfect love. No demand is made on his selfishness, no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, imaginary women become the mediums through which he increasingly adores himself. End quote. When we ask sex to be the answer, we are unable to love. We're unable to love others. We're unable to love ourselves and like a man dying of thirst in the desert continues to look for salt water and continues to return to it again and again and continues to endlessly use others and their bodies to quench their own thirst 
the distortion of sex takes the love out of it. How do we distort sex? Distortion one, sex is merely an appetite. Distortion two, sex is the answer. One we depreciate, another we glorify. Either way, the distortion of sex takes the, takes the love out of it. So how do we walk in love? How do we walk in love? How do we come to the place where we can break out of that cycle of using and consuming, and how can we get to the place where we can give sacrificially in love? And I'm not just talking about a marriage relationship. How do we do that in any relationship that we encounter? We first need someone outside of us to speak the words, you are good, you are lovely, you are acceptable. Ernest Becker, who is not a Christian, who is not religious in any way, he saw the folly of pursuing this in our sexual encounters and romantic partners. He says this in his book, The Denial of Death. Quote, Needless to say, human partners can't do this. The lover does not dispense cosmic heroism. He cannot give absolution in his own name. The reason is that as a finite being, he too is doomed. And we read that doom in his own fallibilities and his very deterioration. Redemption can only come from outside the individual, from beyond, from our conceptualization of the ultimate source of things, the perfection of creation, end quote. What we need is someone that's not like us, that's not fallible like us, that's not, I mean, you're just like me. We can't fulfill each other's needs. What we need is someone from outside of us who actually has the capacity to make us lovely. What we need is someone to love us in such a way that they love us, not because we are intrinsically lovely, but in order to make us lovely. We need a lover who knows us deeply and loves us anyway. We need a lover who enjoys us deeply, that he delights in us. We need a lover that will never leave us nor forsake us, a lover who isn't going anywhere ever. We need a lover who is willing to die. Wouldn't it be great to have a love like that? I mean, that's what we're after in our pursuit of the romance. I mean, we are desperately looking to be naked and not ashamed. To be exposed and yet embraced. To be seen and yet admired. And only Jesus can love us in such a way that no other lover can. Because only Jesus is able to reach to the most sacred parts of who we are and declare the words, yes, I approve. Ephesians 5 verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now the word gave himself up, paradidomi, it is a loaded word. And it means that Jesus died. Jesus gave himself up. He handed himself over to death. That the wrath of God that was aimed at us was redirected towards him. 
that Jesus took upon himself all the ugliness of who we are, and he became the ugliest, ugliest thing alive. He saw us, he saw our filth, he saw our immorality, and said, I'll take that, and I'll make that mine. So that by the offering and the sacrifice of his own body, we might become a sweet-smelling fragrance. I mean, that's the literal there is the sweet, that he has made us a sweet-smelling fragrance. You say, I don't feel like that. I don't feel like a sweet-smelling fragrance. But what's most true of us is not what we say is most true of us. What's most true of us is what Jesus says is true of us. And we can walk in love when we find our loveliness in him. Now, I want to let you in on a little family secret. And you're almost not going to want to believe me when I tell you this, but it's true. It's absolutely true. And you're, you might get a little jealous of me, in fact. And I don't mean to brag, but here it is. I've been using the same deodorant stick that I've been using since high school. And I know you're thinking, dude, that's gross. But here's why I think you might actually get a little jealous. The reason why I'm able to do this is not because I've got this magic bottleneck deodorant stick that never runs out, nor is it because I don't sweat, but it's because my sweat does not stink. <laughs> it's true. My wife can attest to this. I mean, I smell good. I've got 99 problems, but my sweat ain't one. And my wife sent me this article a couple of years ago that helped explain this phenomenon. It was entitled, Why Koreans Don't Smell, or Why Koreans Don't Need Deodorant, or something like that. I even Googled it again this week, and I found a lot of articles, a lot of material out there. And I'm not going to understand to understand, a, I'm not going to pretend to understand the science behind it. But it's got something to do with this genetic mutation, this mutated gene called the ABCC11. And this gene, this ABCC11, somehow alters the way these enzymes are broken down or produced, and the end result ultimately is that the sweat doesn't smell. I told you guys could get jealous. <laughs> but now I feel compelled whenever I see a Korean who is applying deodorant to say, hey, you don't need that. You got the ABCC11. You already smell good. Don't you know what you've got? Yeah, I, I met with Moses Park this week and I wanted to ask him if he had deodorant. Stop, stop wasting your money. But... The reason why many of us keep wallowing in shame and keep beating ourselves up and keep getting caught in the cycle of self-destruction over and over and over again and keep returning it to it over and over again is because we don't understand what we've got. Don't we know that all the filth, all the ugliness, all the dirtiness, that we think belongs to us is no longer ours. That Jesus took it away 
and has made us a sweet-smelling fragrance, the most exquisite of perfumes. Wouldn't it be great if we could believe that? That we are the most exquisite of perfumes. That when God looks at us, man, we smell good. That he sees Jesus. He can say, yes. Yes. You are good. You are good. And in you, I am well pleased. Now, where are we taking our questions? Are we taking our questions to Jesus? Because only Jesus can answer those questions. Now, some of us may be thinking, I didn't realize I had questions. You know, but beneath every distorted compulsion is a God-given appetite. Beneath every perverted and distorted pleasure is actually a desire for something legitimate and good. G.K. Chesterton said this, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Now, where do we take our deepest questions of acceptance, admiration, and approval? Are we taking it to Jesus? Are we taking it to sexual encounters and romantic partners? About eight years ago, I wrote this in my journal. I'll read you parts of it from September 21st, 2010. I'm thinking to myself a couple thoughts just now. My mom acted like a defender and advocate between us and my dad. But looking back in my childhood and even in my college days, I'm wondering if my family dynamic had anything to do with how most of my friends were females and I didn't like, connect well, and perhaps distrusted men. In college, for instance, 80 to 90% of my friends were females. I wonder if that helps put the pieces together for why I take the question, am I a man, to the woman. It was the woman, after all, who was a safe one, the kind one, the one who could care for me, affirm me, and love me. It was the male who couldn't be trusted. After a day, where have I gone? After a bad day, where have I gone? I called my mom. Where do I go now? I go to my wife. Maybe I'm less of a man than I want because I'm looking to my wife for affirmation. When the world doesn't give it to me, I think I would be crushed if my wife wasn't supportive. I think I often put her in unfair positions where if she were to disagree, it would say something of me. But she wasn't designed to answer the question. For many of us, we take our questions to sexual encounters and to romantic partners, but only Jesus can answer these questions. And I want to encourage you to take your questions to him. Maybe literally. Maybe this week you can get a piece of paper and pen out and write these questions down. I'll give you a couple of ideas of what you can write down. Jesus, am I good? Jesus, am I lovely? Jesus, am I acceptable? Jesus, am I beautiful? Jesus, do I matter? Jesus, can you be trusted? Jesus, Jesus, what do you say about me? Who do you say that I am? 
How do you feel about me? Because when we walk in, we can walk in love when we find our loveliness in Jesus. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate weddings. That's really cool. Uh, it's especially meaningful when it's friends and people I love. And just before I arrived here in Boston, I had the opportunity to do a wedding for my friend Daniel and his beloved Miranda. And we went to Disney World. I mean, it was a magical wedding on so many levels. But perhaps one of the most enchanting part of the whole festivity was the moment that I asked everyone to please rise. And the organist would start playing, signaling that something sacred was about to happen. And the double doors open, and there she was. And everyone would ooh and ah. And at that moment, everyone had their eyes on the beautiful bride. Everyone except me. Now, one of the best things about being an officiator of the wedding is that you get the best seat in the house. Better than the parents, better than the groomsmen. You get everything right here. You get all the magic right in front of you. And at that moment when time seemed to slow down and when everyone had their eyes set on the bride, I looked directly at my friend Daniel. And I looked at his face, captivated with wonder, lit with delight, pleased with what he saw. His beautiful bride, dressed in white, flawless, radiant. You see, that's the picture. That is the sacred picture, just a shadow, just a taste of how our Lord Jesus feels about us at this very moment. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because I think if we can start to believe that, we might be able to start learning from God to walk in love and to imitate our God who loved himself, who loved us and gave himself up for us. We can walk in love when we find our loveliness in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're your kids. Jesus, we're your bride. And for many of us, we have a hard time knowing that you delight in us. We don't see it. We don't feel it. The dots are not connected. Holy Spirit, only you can connect those dots. And Holy Spirit, only you can be the one that takes your words and makes them louder and clearer and more beautiful than any other voice we might hear. So I ask that, Lord Jesus, you would do that for us. Seal it. Where I have failed, I know you can pick up the dots. It's not about me. It's about you. And I ask that today you would be beautiful, that Jesus, you would make our hearts leap. We pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen.